Hello and welcome to How to Be an Artist, a new podcast brought to you by Soho House. My name's Kate Bryan and I'm the head of collections for Soho House and over this series I'll be talking to a global lineup of influential contemporary artists who all feature in our art collection. We'll be considering what it takes to be an artist and especially what that means right now. On this, our first episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Idris Khan. Idris is a British artist who works and lives in London. He uses various media, drawing from a diverse range of cultural sources, including music, philosophy, literature and religion, to create densely layered imagery that both repeats and creates something entirely new. I'm always really amazed by the fact that his minimalistic aesthetic can be so emotionally powerful. Idris found success as a young man and has many career highlights, including the first site-specific work at the British Museum, as well as a monument in the UAE, which is one of the largest public sculptures in the world, at a whopping 23 metres high and 100 metres long. In 2017, he was appointed OBE for services to art. Idris Khan, hello and welcome. Hi, Kate. <laughs> um, Idris, we're very proud to have several of your artworks in the Soho House collection. There's a, a stamp piece in Little House Mayfair. We've got a work in Dumbo House, New York. An amazing piece you made for me is a special commission called Walk the Line at 40 Greek Street. And actually, we've got a new work coming, which is going into Shoreditch House. We should start really with the thread that connects all of your work. So I said in the introduction, you work in a range of media, photography, painting, sculpture. But the one thing that is there in everything is this compulsion to repeat, to layer, to, to go back and forth, but actually arrive at something totally new. It's kind of a crazy paradox, isn't it? That you, you spend so much time repeating, taking what's already there, repeating it ad infinitum, and yet you make something entirely original. I suppose, yeah, you could <laughs> I try, I guess. <laughs> but I guess life is, is a repetition of, of sorts. And when I first started layering um, images, I was looking at sort of my old photographs, let's say, and I was at the Royal College on my master's. And instead of sort of creating a new photograph of the world, I tried to look at photographs that already existed, that I had already taken. So I took my entire trip around Europe or a trip to the, the Empire State Building and re-photographed those photographs and then layered them on top of each other. And by layering and repeating, what you're doing is actually creating a singular moment of time made up of lots of different layers. So it was almost like that repetition created a totality of something. Mm. So you were looking at this sort of journey of time in one space or image. So, yeah, that is the, I suppose, yeah, repetition is the thread that sort of links everything. But I also think this idea of layering time and experiencing mm. time differently. Yeah, you have chosen things which mean something to you. So whether it's, you know, the work of artists Caravaggio or Agnes Martin or Sufi philosophy. I mean, in 2004, you made quite a spectacular work. It's still staggering conceptually for me now. And I've seen it a few times where you took every page of the Quran and presented it as one image. Yeah, I mean, that's supposed to do with my upbringing. My father was a Muslim and he married a Welsh woman and she converted to Islam. And I grew up in Birmingham with three three siblings. So Islam was a part of my life as a young kid. You know, the way that you read the Quran is through repetition. So you come back to the same page every day and you return to it over and over again. And I don't practice anymore and I, and I stopped practicing probably from the age about 15. But I wanted to sort of hold on to my past in some way. It was my father's idea, actually, because I was repeating pictures and the photographs I just talked about. And I wanted to say, well, OK, how can I capture the power of this book or the power of the way that it's read? 
So I photographed every single page of the book and then layered on top of each other. And it creates this amazing feeling because it has this huge dark gutter in the center that you almost want to sort of fall into. Mm. So it's about capturing the power of the book, capturing its complexities, capturing its problems as well, because it can cause a lot of issues that has, has happened with Islam in the last 20 years, especially. And it was just after 2000, September 11th, 2001. So it was a difficult time for Muslims in the world. Mm. And it was sort of one of those, in a way, just saying, well, you know what, there is a beauty to this as well. There is a beauty to this religion. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I always was struck by the fact that it felt at once a very process-based artwork, but intensely personal. And it, it almost, it didn't seem like a defence, but it seemed like a celebration. And I know that it was actually really well received by the Islamic community. Is that right? Yeah, it was. And I actually got a little bit of permission to do it. I, I went to different mullahs at mosques and said, you know, if I'm going to do this, it's not a sacrilegious thing to do. It's almost capturing the essence, perhaps in some way, and uh, and, and it being almost like a, a, a memory of that book, because it's a photograph. I'm not, you know, making any illustrations of the, the stories or anything like that. So it was very much saying, OK, this book exists in the world. Look, that the parrot has and can I show it in this way and yeah I was it was it was well received I think. Do you used to go to Karachi for your summer holidays is that right with, with your dad your dad would take you back to where he's yeah, from? Yeah my father never really wanted to sort of do the big European summer trips he always wanted to go back to his, his see his family and his mother so we were there for six weeks of of most summer holidays yeah. Did you take the work back did you show family members there what did they make of it? I did I did I think in the same way it was just you know well they'd never seen anything like it before mm. so it was a nice it was definitely all positive. Yeah. Do you think that that experience of being a child and working with the Quran in that way, which is so particular, has had a sort of lasting impact and that's the way that you make your work? Let's get onto the let's get onto Freud's couch for a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is it, is it yeah. sort of psychologically imprinted on you? Is that the the reason that you make the work in the way that you do? Has, has... It's kind of I think there's a couple of things, you know, you look back when you were a kid and and yeah, I mean there is the the, the the repetition within Islam is, is very evident. You know, you pray five times a day, you return to the mat. The prayer itself is a repeated movements. So I can't help feeling like that process is somewhere embedded in my mind. That's how I have to express myself making art, mm. perhaps. And the other thing, you know, I used to be a, an athlete. I used to run a lot. And that's all to do with repetition, right? I mean, I used to sort of run 100 miles a week. So I really was, I really wanted to be a runner. And that was all going round the track, round the track, round the track. It was just all this, you know, all about, I suppose, repeating, you know. I love the way you say, I used to run a lot. And you follow <laughs> up with, I used to run 100 miles a week. That's <laughs> it, was, it was good. I mean, that's what I wanted to be, actually. And then it was, it didn't work out. I don't think I was ever going to be the uh, Mo Farah. So, who, you, who you ran against, didn't you? Uh, <laughs> we did in the English schools. Um, he was younger than me and he was way better than me. I was never going to reach the potential, I don't think. So it was just a case of, you know, what's my next best talent? And and in a way, I'm not sure I was that talented, but it was art. I had the feelings for, for making making pictures. Back in 2014, I asked you to make a work for an exhibition I was curating called What Marcel Duchamp Taught Me. I thought to myself, if he is the most influential artist of the 20th century, which I think we all agree he is, well, what did he teach you? You know, so I asked 50 artists and I thought you were the perfect artist to ask because effectively your career started by taking a sort of a found object, even if it was one that you'd created and then remaking it. And that was a simple Duchampian premise, you know, of course, Duchamp who creates the fountain, which is a urinal turned on its side and it, you know, blows apart art and Pandora's box. Anything can be art if the artist says so. 
But the the found object is usually quite simple. It's a ready-made. There's almost something throwaway about the title. It's quick, it's fast, it's about an intellectual conceit. It's a powerful conceptual moment. Whereas your work in a Duchampian fashion is not quick. It's not a an instant thing. It's not throwaway. I mean, it's so laboured. This has got to be some of the most like time-intensive way of sort of working in that field. Does it feel meditative to you or does it feel like it might get mind-bendingly crazy doing it? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, the way that you look at art is, do you think of time when you look at a piece of art? Um, probably, I think you probably think about the, how long the painter took to make the painting or how long. But in in photography, you don't necessarily think that way because you think of it as being an instant. Mm, that's why it was always difficult to find a place in the fine art world because people thought it was utilitarian. Yeah. It's just a quick snap, right? Yeah, exactly. And I suppose in some way you do see the, the labour that goes into it. Because if you think about the idea of every page of the Quran or every page of Susan Sontag's on photography or Camelus, the you know, Roland Barthes great text, you see and you think about time because you're saying, well, how long does it take me to read a book? And is that then evident in what you're looking at? So that's mm. that's a sort of, I guess, starting to map out time in some way in an image or try and show that length of experience, perhaps. But I think there's this sort of I don't know, that ritual of time is really important. And I think when I started looking at your work, I was really impressed by something which looked minimalistic, looked clean. You know, you go into one of your exhibitions and they're pristine. The presentation, the way the the stamp paintings look, which we'll come on to in a minute, and the way your sculptures, everything has developed. And the language is clean and it's ordered and it's structured and you sometimes use industrial materials. And yet, actually... I have to loosen up a bit. No, but <laughs> when you spend time with the works, you stand in front of them, you suddenly realise that you're looking for those kind of in-between spaces and all this sort of poetry starts to emerge through that idea of time. Because you've used a source material, but you've basically obscured it. You've kind of like demolished its original meaning. It's become something else because it almost becomes impossible to read. There's no, nothing literal. And you're kind of, as a viewer, searching to find the original. You're searching to try and read text. You're searching to try and understand an image. And then suddenly it kind of gives way and then you're kind of in this kind of like Mark Rothko suspended state where you're thinking oh I'm missing the point I you know I need I should be in these kind of in-between spaces mm. so talk to me about how you make the stamp paintings so it's a process you know just um, writing or researching great poets that I like to read and then I write my own passage of writing and then I create those into rubber stamps but it came at a difficult time the actual making of stamp paintings came when we, my wife, uh, Annie, and I lost our first baby, which was quite a difficult time, through miscarriage. And then my mother died in the same year. So it was quite uh, an impactful, emotional roller coaster that, that we were on. And actually, the sort of positive thing that came out of that was me making my rubber stamp paintings. Because I wanted to create a work that would hold onto all the grief that I was feeling in that time. And so I came to the studio, I was writing down certain passages of writing about that grief or having to deal with it. And I wanted to make drawings and I just started stamping in a cathartic way. And to create, I created this radial formation. So you could read the text at the end of the sentences and then in the centre there was this void with all the text um, layered up on top of each other. And there's something quite beautiful about almost stamping away that grief. And that's how I felt when I was making those paintings. They developed into these big sort of huge abstract things now, but um, that was my first engagement into, you know, writing stamps and then making paintings. Did you feel vulnerable showing those works, having made work before which wasn't so um, emotionally visceral? I mean, you, I mean, I know looking at them myself that you, 
you feel the emotions on the surface because I know that these are your writings and these are your thoughts. When in a way, they're, they're a journal, they're a diary. There is a sort of, there's a direct access both sort of internally, but definitely you sort of projecting externally as well. Yeah, I, did. I think it was a very big emotional response. Yeah, I did feel a little insecure showing them for the first time. And pretty much because that was the first time I'd actually created a drawing. Mm. Prior to that, I was doing a little bit of sculpture and photographs. So this is like, oh, I need a way of trying to actually have a physical contact with a piece of paper. <laughs> and it sounds weird, but it wasn't that, you know, when I was working on the computer, I was doing my digital pictures and then I'd print them out and that becomes a photograph. But, but here, you know, this is paper, me and creating something. And I was never a naturally gifted artist drawer, if you like. I leave that to, to Annie. She's like so immediate with her with her work. I have to take time. I need a concept. I need to sort of build in, in the idea first and then go to go to the page. So that was a real release for me at the time as well. It was like, okay, I've got this emotionally packed year. How can I release this information or release mm. these ideas into an exhibition? And and then again it, it was it was a sort of almost like a joyous occasion as well in some way, because it was like, oh my God, I can actually do this. And this is now, is this a journey where I can actually start to make paintings? Yeah, because I think before your work had sort of pushed the boundaries of photography, you didn't seem to be particularly comfortable sat within the realm of you know Idris and his camera. You were already pushing the boundaries, thinking about what the limits of photography were, had to break out of the camera. You know, you started using scanners and found images. And then, of course, the stamp paintings, which are called purposefully paintings, which is such a beautiful turn of phrase. And even the, the photographic works were thinking about the relationship to painting. Oftentimes your work completely belies the way in which you make it. It might look like a charcoal, it might look like a painting, but actually neither charcoal nor paint were present in the studio on the moment they were painted necessarily. I think that's, I like it's interesting that you, that you to come from a quite strict photography beginning and then to just emerge as someone who is sort of really plays with what the boundaries of these disciplines are. I like that deception. I liked it with those photographs because I suppose in some way I was dealing with the surface of, of print I wanted to sort of go beyond the surface in some way. So you were confused about what you were looking at, you know? So it's like, okay, here's the photographic print. Because if you think about a photograph in general, you sort of look at the surface, right? Because you get it, I mean, if you print anymore, that is. If you get it, you look at the person in the picture rather than it being a physical object. And for me, it was about actually looking at the, or getting the viewer to look at the photograph that I'm making and look at the surface rather than where it's taking you. Yeah, it's that shift in perception, that sort of quick disruption. And you've gone back to that idea, this object of the photograph, in an incredible new work that was uh, in London this year, 65,000 photographs. When we met um, over 10 years ago now. I know, I was, um, actually, yeah, I was thinking yeah. about that with Annie. When, the we, when we were kids. Yeah, <laughs> We were talking about the image overload. This is, this is probably the year that Instagram was founded. And we were talking about, wow, there are so many digital images in the world I think you told me this fact that I've then told everybody else since. <laughs> you know, if you printed all the photographs that existed in the world at that moment, they'd be heavier than the world. And we were just blown away by just the sort of ubiquity of the image. And then you made a work called 65,000 Photographs, which is, you know, documents the number of photographs you had in one phone cycle. You know, you'd had the phone, what, a few years? Yeah. And you noticed you'd taken 65,000 photographs all sat there on the cloud. So you made a sculpture which would be what it was to print them if you stacked them in sort of increasing size of print sizes, six by four upwards. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you make of this compulsion for all of us to take photography? Is that, that sculpture is a very beautiful thing. It's very Idris Khan. Thank you. But also, what what are you saying? Are you Is there a statement there? Or are you very ambivalent about it? No, it is a statement. It's because you can, I think it's, it goes back to printing again. I think it's, it's the idea of that, okay, we're not 
creating photographs in a physical form any, anymore. We're all looking at them at, at our phones and it's the photograph that comes first. So if we go out, we're trying to capture that experience because we want to share it or we capture it because we think we're going to forget it. So it's overtaken somehow in some way your eyes and your mind, right? It's like, okay, let's get the picture first and then think about the experience later. And we're all guilty of it and there it is. And then we have all these massive photographs on our phones. And so for me, the question was, how can I show that passage of time in a sculpture? Mm. So it was it was actually over a period of, I think, about four, four or five years that I created that many pictures. And I was like, okay, here's the number, and how do I express that as a volume? Mm. And in some way, photography is all about volume. You have these very specific sizes, you know, 5 by 7 6 by 4 10 by 8 You go and choose whatever photograph, and this is a very systematic way of actually choosing your scale. And then I thought, okay, so this has this thing has to balance on the bottom. It has to almost look like it's almost going to topple over on this very small footprint of a, a 6 by 4 photograph. And so when you're looking at it, you have this fragility. It's like this, this period of time that's elapsed and you've recorded it in this way. How do you show it? And how does it make you feel? And I was quite emotional when I saw it. I was like, oh my God, that's five years of my life. And it was mm. probably an explosion because I had kids and, you know, you photograph your kid every yeah, single Yeah, we should add, by the way, this sculpture is eight metres high. It that's is. That's the volume. That's how it but manifests. That's actually two stacks next to each other. So it would be 16 metres high mm. of that many photographs at, at that mill that we did it at. Um, so it was it sort of captured the passage of time, I think, in some way in an aluminium and steel sculpture. Mm. I mean, it was a kind of reckoning when I went to see it because I was conscious of the same thing. I just had a baby when I went to see it. And I, and I my phone, I'd never taken a photograph every single day, I don't think, you know, unless I was on a trip away looking at art every day. And suddenly I saw my phone was just, you know, melting the poor thing. Because you have a baby, it's like 20 photos before breakfast. <laughs> yeah, um, and I was sort of thinking about a, a, a tandem work that you'd made about your mother addressing that same theme. Yeah, because that, again, came down to how many pictures you actually had in an album back then. It's like you printed and had it. But she, my mother died when she was 59, and I could only find around 390 pictures of her existence. I mean, that doesn't seem like so many, but actually it's enough. Mm. <laughs> if mm. you think about it, we, we've got crazy, we've got so many pictures, and, and this is five years of my life. But then looking back at her life, it was just this tiny to stack of pictures, which is quite moving, but it also shows you the way that we need to record our lives. Mm. Well, you mentioned Annie earlier on. We should say this is Annie Morris, who is um, also an established artist based in London. I actually wrote about you guys for my first book because my first book was all about artist couples. And I was sort of interested in this two artists in one relationship, which is a kind of peculiar thing because a lot of people would say that an artist sits outside the normal sort of realms of society. We've got this mythology of the artist, you know, like it's a great sort of joke to say to an artist, you know, you're going to get a proper job. During lockdown, it was like, well, surely it's just lockdown is always what it's like for being yeah, an artist. You know, yeah, the artist in the garret. And there's these kind of quips and these sort of social stereotypes, which are fun and charming. But I think they they do point to something, which is that we see the artist as slightly other. And it's an extraordinary thing that you and Annie, you know, live and work together in such a fashion. Your studios are right next door. You've got two great kids who basically become completely sort of engaged with this art world, whether they like it or not. Like some kids might never go to a museum or gallery. You and I are similar in the fact that we both grew up in the suburbs, not from remotely arty families. And I mean, I didn't make my first trip to a museum until I was 17. Same. 
Yeah. Yeah. And yet your kids are existing in this extremely sort of intense, creative, cultural world, just like poor Juno. My daughter's going to be It's still really difficult to get them to go to a museum. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm reckoning, I'm realising that's going to be the case. But I guess what I'm interested in is what it's like to, to live your life in such a sort of intense, creative way. There are plenty of creative people listening to this podcast, but... I think it's a very particular lifestyle that you occupy. The fact that it's 24-7, you're married to another artist, you have distinct practices, you spend time going in and out of each other's studios. Saturday is not Saturday for you guys, surely. It's it's not. And, you know, we met in 2007 and, and I can yeah, honestly say that we have been together 24 hours a day since that. I mean, you know, a couple of breaks perhaps, but we really, really have. And it's totally intertwined and... It was just the way it was. I mean, Annie moved in after a month and we were engaged after five and we got married in within the year after that. So it was just all it was all so fast and speedy, but it was just the way it was. And, you know, Annie's such a different artist to me because I think she's very impulsive. She's got a great skill of drawing. She can immediately make something really beautiful straight away. As I said earlier, I have to sort of try a little bit harder with an idea first. It takes me so long to get on with it. But she's impulsive. She gets it done. She's got fast and that's her energy. So that's a good thing, right? Mm. Because if we were both like that, <laughs> it would be too much. It, it's one of those things, it, it just works. Mm. Um, and, you know, we are totally codependent. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because I think given the year that we've had, we've all looked to artists. And in a, in a way, I've really noticed people turn to artists as if they're kind of soothsayers or if they will give some comfort or we're kind of asking artists to help us creatively intellectualize everything that we're feeling because we're imagining, well, you're the job, you're the person whose job that is. Yeah. So you can help me with this. What's it felt like to be on the other side of that, to be an artist in a year like 2020 where we've certainly been asking you for some answers? I think that, there was a lot of the time, like you said, where people were saying, well, actually, it doesn't affect you because you can just walk to the studio and do it. For me, and, uh, you know, in March, it was a little bit about sort of, you know, Annie and I were, were like, you know, we're, we're feeling really, really insecure. We're feeling sort of like this crazy fear as everybody was feeling. And we decided to get out of London, actually. At the time, I froze, actually. I didn't really want to make any art. I wanted to concentrate on what we were giving to the kids, schoolwork and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't actually do anything. We went for long runs and things like that. And just actually had time to sort of look more intensely at everything that was surrounding me. And I think that maybe that happened for a lot of people seeing nature change much more vividly because mm. we had more time to look. And of course, you know, through this period, we were doing lots of charity things and, and, and trying to, to raise money for the uh, for art institutions. And, and, and in, in, in any way we could help, mm. we were doing lots of that. And that was kind of what was sort of ticking over through lockdown and, and, and through the summer. But what was great is out of that, I have come up with a really lovely idea for an exhibition. So let's touch upon that. You're returning to a theme that you've looked at in your practice before, which is music. You know, you've taken every page of a sonata and you've produced those into one of your layered images. And then in a new body of work, you've really, well, you've really explored it in a quite a fascinating way, particularly through the prism of 2020, right? The reason I made the early photographs of the layering of Beethoven and Mozart was actually to do with triggering memories. Because I think we have a tendency to, we can think about where we are when we're listening to a particular piece of music or it could take you back to an experience, a bit like a photograph. Mm. So I remember sort of listening to Beethoven sonatas at the time and I thought, oh my God, can I make a picture of using the notations um, to trigger a memory? So this is where I was when I experienced that. This is where I was when I experienced that piece of music. And the new show is about uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which I used before actually with a, in, a, in a ballet with Wayne McGregor. And it's the same thing. It made sense that I was using the Four Seasons because I think I wanted to capture 2020 in seasonal changes. 
because you know right from when we all started hearing about covid pretty much january december last year you know it's been a whole year since that so how can i make an exhibition of capturing that year so using the four seasons music made sense it's about it's about seasonal changes spring summer winter autumn and then for me it was then about watching the seasons change and being in the countryside looking at the the, the, the changing colors and how can I show that in, in a body of work? So I've created 28 watercolours. And it's the first time I'm sort of using watercolour as well for the first time, mm. which is nice. And just to be able to mix in that way and have a sort of speedy response to sort of paper and watercolour. And then I use the sheet music and then stamp the notations of the four seasons on top of all the sheet music of the four seasons. It's hard to explain and try and visualise now, but hopefully you'll get to see the show. But So it's colour, changing colour through season seven works per season. And hopefully... I suppose the viewer will come into the show and sort of go on that journey with me. And sh it shows this passage of time and it really, perhaps just maybe in a poetic way, maybe because we need that poetic way to show the last year because there's been such an up and down in emotions. And maybe those colours will show those changing emotions too. Yeah, I mean, I think for someone who knows your practice really well, it was great when you sent me the images as a sneak preview. And I thought, wow, we've got the next departure, which is colour, and which is, you know, because we always have this joke that, you know, Annie's studio is the colourful one next door and yours is always monochrome. Occasionally, you know, we will suddenly get these flashes of blue and we were like, wow, it just has gone wild. <laughs> it's, got, it's got a bit of blue. So now we see this, this sort of extraordinary colour and not just colour, but colour telling a story and things which feel to me anyway some of your most intimate work and also some of the most handmade looking work for want of a better term you've always you've done so fantastically well with different industrial materials sandblasting and using glass and making work with the stamps and there's always been these extraordinary processes and you've actually brought a lot of things outside of art and brought them into art to help you manifest your idea whereas here it's watercolor and they're intimate they don't they don't look very large to me what are they like a a1 yeah they're not they're not um probably smaller than 55 by yeah or something yeah so suddenly it's a different kind of work and it sounds like sounds to me like it could only yes. be the kind of work that would come out of this year you wouldn't have otherwise made anything like this not even close to it i agree yeah and and again you talk back to sort of materials and having readily made materials you know getting sheet music and using the sheet music as as to to put the layer of watercolor is a very immediate thing and then and they do become collage so you're right it's more handmade it's more that sort of that that sort of uh, feeling to the work but um it's a difficult one because, you know, <laughs> I haven't used colour before much. I mean, very, very, very sporadically. Blue was this sort of, the year of blue, essentially, what it was before, was maybe a little way of having a, taking that step mm. away from black and white. You know, it's like, well, okay, blue or the colour colour of blue that I choose as well sort of has the same emotional response to a black and white image. I think it's very sort of like a dreamlike. It can have a very immediate effect on 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 on, on your emotions. And so it's almost like a stepping stone. It's like, oh, can I can I move into colour? Can I do this? And of course, you know, as you said, you know, rightly said, you know, I'm next to I'm next to Annie, and you know, I'm, it's a it's a it's a colour, extreme colour whack in your face when you walk into her studio. So I can't help but be influenced by that. Mm. But needing an idea or needing a reason to start making colour work, I couldn't just like, oh, here I am, I'm making colour work. You know, I didn't. I didn't want it to be like that. I, and so then looking at this year, looking at the way that what I experienced, it makes perfect sense to then, okay, how can I use mm. colour in, in my work? I can't wait to see it. We touched upon something there which is which is great and I think actually is a recurring thing that I've talking to you over the last 10 years. 
the vulnerability of your practice, which is there beneath the surface because you started out with photography. And I feel in a really interesting way, a lot of your work is just pushing the boundaries and just exploring the limits and almost asking permission. Like, can I come in here and do this? Is this okay? I also think there's something to learn from that, isn't there? That we think of the artists as being born as these fully formed entities. I was looking at Robert Maplethorpe yesterday. He really had a nervousness about his practice as well because of that that horrible way that we have thought about photography historically. It's been difficult to find a place for it in the 20th century because of that, that association of it being easy and simple and not necessarily really fine art historically and yet you know you're still you're still doing the same thing that Maplethorpe was doing which is like questioning and pushing and trying to find new boundaries a a good artist is continually pushing and actually always treading on space which maybe feels a bit uncertain at the beginning am I right? Annie and I were talking about this a couple of days ago because I think that doubt is a very important thing when you're creating something I think that if you don't doubt yourself it's not vulnerable enough somehow and I think that you can be confident and assured in getting to that final idea I think that I can do that I push and push and push it until I find something and make something but the space before that is all about it's all about doubting it's all about rejecting it's all about looking it's all about searching for something and if that's gone I don't think you can create a very good artwork actually I don't think you're a very good artist Mm. we, we touched upon earlier this idea that we kind of look to artists for answers And in that respect, for that commission, um, for the UAE, it really was looking to you to take a sort of intellectual problem, take a social issue, take something which had, you know, was born out of something very difficult, which is the fallen soldiers, Mm. and to come up with a solution which sort of honoured them, did it with dignity related to the history of the place, but also had to be distinctly your own work. I mean, these are really difficult things that we put on artists' shoulders. We say we've got this huge thing that we need to memorialise and we're going to find one person to do all of this work for us. I mean, how did you even start to think about what well, that actually, physically should look like? But actually, that's quite an interesting thought because I actually did think about one person. So I thought to myself, well, if I can get one person to feel the emotion of loss in a sculpture, then that will work for many people who go and visit that space. I thought about I thought about what it was like for one person to walk around that sculpture in all its grandeur with its huge amounts of steel and aluminium and it's a massive thing I wanted to put one person in the centre of that to feel the sort of idea of loss Mm. is that how you struck upon the idea of having the the, all the tablets leaning so we should explain what it looks like it's 100 metres long 23 metres high so escalates down yeah pretty massive (laughs) Um, and then the form of it is just it's just magical to look at I've never seen anything like that it's nice but the idea was that each if you think that each tablet represented a person. They're 31, aren't they? Yes, uh, 31 tablets. That's not particularly any number. It was visualised what it looked like was Mm. sort of of worked. And instead of what do you want when you lose someone close to you, you don't want to fall, right? You want to be supported and you want uh, your family to come for whatever loss you go through. You want someone to support you. So the tablets, these massive things, and it was very important for me to get the right momentum of the way the tablet touches the next one in front of it. So if you imagine, kind of looks like a sort of you know domino effect. Like, but I wanted it to to feel like each each tablet was being caught and held rather than falling, because mm. you want that support in life. And I suppose you want a country to support you, and I suppose you want the world to support you, and you want you want support and to try and capture that in a sculpture was was what I was trying to do. What's it like to go back to normal studio life after that, though? I mean, that's fabricated in various countries around the world. It's a, 
it's a really big thing. Very intense. Took you less than a year to pull it all together. I mean, that sounds completely bonkers to me. So fast. What's it like when that's done and you get back on the plane and you go back to Stoke Newington and you go, right, right, put the kettle on? It was hard, actually. Um, I think it took a lot out of out of me because it was it was relentless because they they wanted it so fast. And it does take time to recover from that. And you've got to remember that that was kind of my first piece of public art as well. Mm. I mean, I did a small, smaller project in London, but this was the first massive sculpture I'd made. And it was, it was, it was a huge project. So, you know, from that you sort of go, okay, well, am I ever going to make another public sculpture? <laughs> sort of, I was like, you know, how do I get them? Because I really enjoyed doing it. And it's like, well, now I'm seen as a different type of artist because I've made this massive thing how can I then can I go where can I go from here mm. and um, it's interesting because at the end of this year you've gone much the smallest probably yeah kind of what you've ever made yeah exactly you found success really early on in your career you um I think sold work to Saatchi out of your college show I mean this is sort of like fairy tale stories Victoria Miro you know one of the best galleries in the world top gallery in London signs you you probably must be one of the youngest artists that she'd signed ever at that point what was that like, though, when, you know, you knowing that Saatchi was buying your work? I mean, at that moment in time, that was like the dream for any graduate. Uh, you know, totally nerve wracking, to be honest. Um, and it was a funny day because he called me. I can't remember how he got my number. He said, I'm going to come to your studio. I was like, I don't really have a studio. And he said, well, I'll come to college then. So I sort of rushed around and I was like, you know, it's the top of the floor of um, this building called the Stevens Building, which is like the photography department was on the fifth floor. And... Um, he turned up, and this is when Starchy was, you know, a big uh, man than he is now, I think. And the lifts were out. So he had to walk up five flights oh, of no. really steep stairs to get to the top. So I said, I'm really sorry, this lifts are out. Can you? And he was like, okay. So he walked all the way up, and he was like really exhausted at the top. And he was like, it's better be fucking worth it. <laughs> I can imagine. And he turned in. He came in, he was like... Okay, I'll commission those three there. Wow. And that was it. But um, it was so funny. It was like sweating and like... <gasps> it was brilliant. That's a, a brilliant entry into the art world, I think. Yeah. I mean, these are just sort of glorious things to happen. But it's not necessarily an easier set path to be an artist. And now you're coming up to what you might sort of say you're starting to look at like the mid-career years. Um, how does it feel? How does it? What's the sort of the story of your career as far as you see it? That's the sort of question of the podcast, isn't it? About like how to be an artist or how to become an artist, which is, you know, obviously a really hard question to to try and explain. But I, I look at it and I suppose I, I went the normal route. I went through education, mm. you know, foundation year first, which was amazing. Everyone should do a foundation year, no matter what career path they're taking. Bank, should, yeah. A banker should do one. It should be like um, national service. Instead of going to the <laughs> army, should, you should, everyone should go to art really school. should. And that sort of allowed me to say, well, okay, well, photography is a thing that I really love to do back then and that gave me the idea gave me the sort of path to create images and then a BA uh, at Derby University MA at Royal College of Art and I was still young so I came out when I was 24 and then yeah I had that massive amazing support from 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 Saatchi who came in to buy my degree show which is you know it's I, I, I put some work up and I was like I'm not gonna sell anything you know I mean like I was like oh whatever I'll be back in Warsaw and you know working with <laughs> working with my best friend Dave making snooker tables again I didn't know but it happened and it was great and I had this kind of buzz around me and then it, it only takes one person to really like an artwork right and then being in that world and how people talk about you and and then I had a great dealer Victoria Miro who was so supportive and 
you know, I had a great ride. I mean, I really did. I, and it was, it was, and, and I'm really thankful for it. You know, she supported me and helped me with my studio and found me a studio and then supported me before I made the first show. And that's how you met Rakib Shaw, another great artist who's <laughs> yeah. one of your dearest friends. You were studio mates, weren't you? Next door to each other or something? Yeah, Rakib was so funny because he was with Victoria Muir at the time. And there was a garden party, and <laughs> and I saw, and, and I went, and I said, "Oh, Rakib, you know, I really like your work." And he said, "Oh, um, so you're the new Pakistani on the block, are you?" That's <laughs> <laughs> so Rakib. So Rakib. And I said, "Well, yes." He said, "Please come to the studio. We need to talk." And that was, yeah, that was a, a friendship from 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 then. I always then say on. to young artists, find other artists in your peer group and stick together. You know, you don't realise these people aren't your competition, they're your allies. But that's the thing as well. It's like, you know, I didn't know what a world I was entering. Mm. You know, I didn't come from it. I didn't grow up in it. I didn't know what, what, what um, how to sell a piece of work or, you know, all that kind of stuff. How do you price your work? And I love watching your Instagram things on how to do that, by the way. Okay. But um, I'd, I had that I had that vulnerability. I didn't know. I didn't know how to do. And, and someone like a mentor, you know, like Rakib said, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. Why are you doing that? Because he went through it a bit and he sort of showed me how to deal with certain things that come up. Because it's very difficult, isn't it? You know, pricing your artwork, letting your artwork go, making the right decisions for an exhibition, all of those things that that, that come. But I think from experience and um, and learning, sort of on the job, because you're not really taught much about it at, at art school, which I think is a mistake. Actually, I think it I should there, sh there should be a little bit of professional practice, if you like, um, before you go out there, because I think it will just help in terms of the way that you talk to people about about art and talk about how or what kind of artist you want to be as well and so yeah you need someone to sort of help you on that journey and I luckily had great people so what would be your sort of succinct takeaways to people about you know from from an artist's perspective the world that we're in now what what do you want to tell us about your particular point of view in the world as an artist do you think that there's a there's that kind of value in art that it can transcend the art world that it can transcend an artwork on the wall is there a kind of philosophical endeavour of being an artist that's helpful to everybody else to know about? Is that just buying into the mythology of the artist in the garret? You know, you think about talent first, I think, somehow. I mean, you know, you go back to doubt, doubting yourself and then, you know, I'm, I'm, am I a talented artist? Everyone thinks they're probably a great artist, but who, who knows? I don't know what makes a great artist. But actually, it's not just about talent. I think, I think it is about how you, how hard you work. And it's not that sort of... I don't know, for me, it wasn't, I never think about this sort of myth of like, okay, I'm going to be really drunk, I'm going to be in the studio and I'm going to be painting like that. For me, I really applied myself to everything, everything I do, I think. That's the way I sort of look at it, you know, and, and you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's great, it's great, it's great to be in, it's great to be in that world and, and it's, it's a fun world to be in as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to share it with, with, with another artist. Is there a, Remind me. Is there a particular perspective that an artist can offer non-artists, I suppose, is what I'm asking. Us mortals, help us Oh, artists. OK, sorry, I thought you were talking about me talking to another artist. No, no, but how... I think that that was great advice. But we've certainly looked at artists yeah. and creative people this year and we've sort of looked for them for some comfort, I suppose, almost, philosophically speaking. Yeah. So, you know, and I consider myself a mortal and you're the artist and I'm saying, you know... It does go beyond... It go, I think, yeah, back to your question, it does go beyond the gallery... I think it, I mean, it does, it goes into the public realm. It's, it's trying to, I think that's, it's going to become way more important public realm art mm. because I think that, you know, as we've seen, you know, we weren't allowed to go to museums. So artists found a way to go outside. Yeah. 
And I think that's that's really important. I think, you know, the engaging viewers in, in conversations. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, there are so many of things like podcasts, but also things like conversations over Zoom that you watched really far reaching. You know, I did not, I did one on, on Monday evening with the great artist called Edmund Duval, and we all, we talked about Paul Solan's poetry. And I actually was kind of nervous about doing those sorts of things, but I really loved doing it in the end because, you know, you saw like 300 people coming up on Zoom and you're looking at all their faces from all over the world, so far-reaching, these mm. kind of... Pro- and it wouldn't have been like that if we were at the Royal Academy doing a talk or wherever we were doing a talk because you just have the people in front of you. It's not broadcast everywhere. So that was kind of nice. So I think artists are trying to find a way of engaging outside of just the gallery and the studio way more. And I think there'll be a lot more push to, towards that type of engagement. Yeah, it feels like a very exciting takeaway of a really difficult time. Yeah. Idris Khan, thank you so much for talking to me. Is that it? I want to keep talking. (laughs) I really appreciate it. It was really fun and it was really great to catch up. 